When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For more than 400 years, The Merchant of Venice has fascinated audiences and readers alike. Celebrated actors have been drawn to perform the unforgettable part of Shylock and all of the central roles. And certain phrases, pound of flesh, hath not a Jew eyes, the quality of mercy is not strained, have entered popular consciousness everywhere. The Merchant of Venice offers the satisfactions of deep comedy, comedy that gives you pleasure, and that at the same time makes you think long after you've left the theater. Young lovers find each other and escape from the constraints of the old. But there's also an increasingly tense story of hatred and danger that culminates in a thrilling courtroom scene. The Merchant of Venice is also one of the most uncomfortable and troubling of all the great works of literature. It grapples with the central, tormenting, intractable problem in Western culture the relation of Jews and Christians. It digs deep into the fears and fantasies that have motivated centuries of persecution. And it does all this, strangely enough, while entertaining. I am Stephen Greenblatt. I'm the John Cogan University Professor of the Humanities at Harvard University. Welcome to Shakespeare for All. Today we're speaking with Professor Stephen Greenblatt about The Merchant of Venice. Written in the late 1590s and categorised as a comedy in the 1623 First Folio, this play is named for Antonio, the merchant who borrows money to help his friend woo a wealthy lady. But it is the Jewish moneylender Shylock who has become the play's most memorable and moving figure. Elizabethan society had virtually no Jews. The Jews were expelled en masse from England in the year 1290. So Shakespeare grew up in a world without the physical presence or the living memory of people who were actively and openly Jewish. Created in a world with no visible Jewish communities, Shylock may have started off as a stereotyped comic villain. But over the centuries, he's also come to be seen as a tragic victim, even a tragic hero in a way that often overshadows the play's romantic comedy plotlines. How do we reconcile the comic triumphs of love and laughter with deep religious hatred? How can a character be at once a stereotype and a weirdly compelling and even sympathetic human being? Is it possible to enjoy the spectacle without explaining hatred away or justifying it somehow? What does it mean to come to terms with The Merchant of Venice? That's what's compelling about this play for me. In the play's first line, Antonio tells his friends, In sooth, I know not why I am so sad. They ask if he's worried about his ships at sea, fearing misfortune to his ventures. Terms like fortune and venture are key words for this play, which focuses on the idea of risk. Antonio lays out money to send ships to buy goods abroad, 
which he can sell for profit in Venice. Every voyage represents a possible loss. But Antonio trusts that by risking great sums, he can gain even more. Antonio has taken other kinds of risks as well. He's already loaned large sums of money to a young nobleman named Bassanio, for whom he has a unique and powerful kind of affection. Bassanio is heavily in debt and cannot repay Antonio, but he has a plan to mend his fortunes. He knows of a beautiful heiress, Portia, and he wants to win her hand and her wealth. To outfit himself as an impressive suitor, Bassanio needs to borrow even more money. Antonio agrees to lend Bassanio the money, 3,000 ducats, which is a vast sum, roughly $500,000 today. But since his money is all invested in his ventures at sea, Antonio also needs to borrow the cash, and so he turns to a wealthy Jewish moneylender named Shylock. In Venice at this time, there were only certain professions that Jews were permitted to practice. They could pursue medicine. There were some very important Jewish doctors. But the principal professions were rag-picking, meaning basically pawnbrokering, and lending money. The idea of a very wealthy Jewish moneylender like Shylock is a fantasy, because in reality the sums were quite strictly limited. But the fantasy grew that the Jews were growing wealthy from this profession. Shylock earns his living by lending money and charging interest on the loans, a practice known as usury. Historically, Christians interpreted the Bible as forbidding usury, and sermons and pamphlets in 16th century England condemned usury as a sin. Antonio, a Christian, makes a point of lending money and never charging interest. He also insults and spits on Shylock in public because, Shylock says, Antonio hates our sacred nation, meaning the Jewish people. Shakespeare is exploiting one of the few genuine mass phenomena in his society. Deep, deep anti-Judaism. Widespread, full of extravagant fantasy and blinding intensity. By the early Middle Ages, Jews were widely perceived as the enemies of Christianity. Christian authorities did not programmatically and systematically attempt to destroy all Jews. Even in their most ferocious anti-Jewish feeling, Christians knew that their own religion came out of Judaism and that they could never turn away completely from their Jewish heritage. But Christians could make Jews miserable. And that was actually the open Christian policy pronounced by the Pope and others. You have to make Jews miserable. They have to be persecuted to prove that it was a mistake not to convert to Christianity. And they have to be marked out as separate from us redeemed Christian people. That's the material that Shakespeare is working with. Christians hate Jews, but it's reciprocal. There's the belief that Jews hate Christians. And they're always looking for a way to get at Christians. Jews are, in that sense, the natural enemies of Christians. And you better watch out for them. They're figures of fear and menace. That's part of the background of the play. And how Shakespeare uses this poisonous cultural phenomenon is one of the most striking and interesting of its aspects. Shylock does hate Antonio, 
partly because Antonio's interest-free loans hurt his business, but primarily because Antonio is so abusive to the Venetian Jews. When Antonio asks Shylock for the loan, he replies, Many a time and off you call me misbeliever, cutthroat dog, and spit upon my Jewish gabardine. And for these courtesies, I'll lend you thus much monies. Antonio grows angry, saying, I am as like to spit on thee again. But Shylock protests, I would be friends with you. He offers to lend the money interest-free, with only a merry sport as a condition. If Antonio cannot repay the loan on time, Shylock may take a pound of his flesh. He comes up with this crazy idea, a no-interest loan. All you have to do is pay the principal back. If you don't pay it on time, you have to pay a pound of flesh. That's the bond. Antonio, confident that his ships will return before the loan is due, agrees to Shylock's bond. The scene now shifts to Belmont, home of the wealthy heiress Portia. Like Antonio, she is melancholy. Because of conditions laid down in her father's will, Portia cannot choose what to do with her inheritance, or choose the man she will marry. Portia has no direct control over her money. She's obliged to follow her dead father's fantastic scheme. She has to set up three caskets, and one of them has her picture in it. And if any suitor chooses the right casket, then Portia has to marry that man. The first suitor to attempt the casket test is the Prince of Morocco. He reads the inscription on each casket. The gold casket reads, Who chooseth me shall gain what many men desire. The silver reads, Who chooseth me shall get as much as he deserves. And the lead reads, Who chooseth me must give in hazard all he hath. The prince interprets the inscription on the gold casket to mean that it will win him Portia's hand, but it is, of course, the wrong casket. The next suitor is the Prince of Aragon. Both this suitor, as a Spanish Catholic, and the Prince of Morocco, whose description more may mean Muslim, would likely have registered with an English Protestant audience as threatening others. But this prince also departs after picking the wrong casket, this time the silver one. Back in Venice, another daughter is unhappy at her father's attempts to control her, but she takes more radical steps to escape him. Shylock has a daughter, Jessica, who has secretly been carrying on a relationship with a Christian Venetian named Lorenzo. She confesses that she is ashamed to be her father's child, and pledges she will become a Christian and Lorenzo's loving wife. Bassanio invites Shylock to dinner, and while Shylock is away, Jessica disguises herself as a boy, steals a casket of her father's gold, and flees the house to elope with Lorenzo. When Shylock realises that Jessica has escaped with his treasure, he is distraught. Two Christians, Solanio and Salarino, describe mockingly how Shylock wandered in the streets, crying, My daughter! Oh, my ducats! Oh, my daughter! 
They also discuss the news that some of Antonio's ships have been wrecked at sea, and Antonio's grief over Bassanio's departure for Belmont. I think Antonio loves the world only for him, says Solanio. They are interrupted by Shylock. His fury that Jessica eloped with a Christian now directs itself at Antonio. Let him look to his bond, he says. Salarino asks what Shylock could want with a pound of Antonio's flesh. It will feed my revenge, Shylock replies. He details all the ways that Antonio has abused him in the past and says, And what's his reason? I am a Jew. Hath not a Jew eyes? Hath not a Jew hands? After describing how Jews resemble Christians in many ways, Shylock promises that he will be as eager as a wronged Christian would be in seeking revenge. Shylock then hears from a Jewish friend, Tubal, that Jessica has been spending his wealth around Italy. Shylock curses her. I would my daughter were dead at my foot and the jewels in her ear, he says. But he seems most affected when he hears that Jessica traded away a certain ring for a monkey. When he hears this news, Shylock says, Thou torturest me, Tubal. It was my turquoise. I had it of Leah when I was a bachelor. I would not have given it for a wilderness of monkeys. Tubal also tells him that Antonio has lost his ships and won't be able to pay his debt to Shylock. Shylock pledges, I will have the heart of him if he forfeit. Meanwhile, in Belmont, Bassanio is having better luck. Portia wants him for her husband. Portia has seen Bassanio before. She's excited about Bassanio, unlike her other suitors. And she wants Bassanio to choose the right casket. She's eager for that. And then Bassanio will have an enormous amount of money showered down on him. Bassanio, channeling the play's focus on risk, chooses the lead casket that reads, Who chooseth me must give and hazard all he hath. Inside, he finds Portia's portrait. Portia joyfully pledges herself and all her wealth to Bassanio. She also gives him a ring, which Bassanio promises never to part with. Bassanio's friend Graciano and Portia's maid Nerissa announce that they plan to marry as well. Then Lorenzo and Jessica arrive, along with a letter from Antonio. He cannot repay the debt, and Shylock plans to take his pound of flesh, which will likely end Antonio's life. Antonio writes to Bassanio, All debts are cleared between you and I, if I might but see you at my death. Portia gives Bassanio gold to repay Antonio's debt and urges him to go to Venice to save his friend. Secretly, Portia and Nerissa prepare to go to Venice as well, disguised as men. In Venice, Shylock and Antonio come before the Duke in court. The Duke encourages Shylock to show mercy to Antonio, but he cannot simply invalidate Shylock's contract. Venice was an international trading city, and for this economy to function, the Duke had to uphold the law for every person in the city, Jewish or Christian. As Antonio says, the Duke must respect the commodity that strangers have with us in Venice. 
Shakespeare's audience thought of Venice as a city of strangers, a place where different nations and religions mixed together. Venice fascinated the English. It was an enormously powerful, independent republic based on international trade, and many different groups lived cheek by jowl there and found a way of getting along. There's a 16th century guidebook to Italy written by a Welshman named William Thomas. And he says that in Venice, it doesn't matter whether you're a Catholic, a Protestant, or, quote, if thou be a Jew, a Turk, or believest in the devil, as long as thou spreadst not thine opinions abroad, thou art free from all control. Now, to an Englishman of the late 16th century, that simply seemed incredible, that there could be a city in which Catholics, Protestants, Jews, Muslims, devil worshippers, presumably atheists, could live side by side and not meddle in each other's business and not try to control the other one. They'd never seen anything like it. And that's what Venice represented, a kind of international melting pot of people. Of course, by our standards, it was no melting pot. The Venetians early in the 16th century came up with the idea of putting the Jews into a particular place they called the ghetto. Did Shakespeare know that there was a ghetto in Venice where Jews were shut in at night? It isn't 100% clear. But what he's fascinated by is not the separation of Jews in a particular place, but the opposite. The fact that Jews and Christians are interacting in this world, that they're constantly doing business with one another. For Shakespeare and probably for his audience, that was the remarkable thing. Bassanio offers to repay twice the amount of Antonio's debt. Shylock refuses. I would have my bond, he says. Enacting his lodged hate against Antonio would bring him more satisfaction than any money. Nothing, it seems, can make Shylock relinquish his bond. But then a young lawyer arrives to help try the case. It is Portia in male disguise, with Nerissa disguised as her clerk. Portia makes an eloquent speech, asking Shylock to grant mercy, beginning... The quality of mercy is not strained. He refuses, saying, I crave the law, the penalty of my bond. So Portia says Antonio must prepare for the knife. Antonio draws Bassanio close and bids him tell Portia how I loved you. Bassanio says he would sacrifice his life and his wife to save Antonio. Shylock tells Antonio, come, prepare. But just then, Portia stops him. Shylock has insisted on the exact penalty specified in his bond, and now Portia reminds him what exactly the bond specifies. This bond doth give thee here no jot of blood. He may take Antonio's flesh, but he may not spill any of Antonio's blood when he takes it. And this detail changes everything. At this point, the case shifts to a criminal case. He'll be shedding blood inevitably if he takes a pound of flesh. And that moves you to a different sphere legally in Venice. And in that sphere, there is a distinction between citizens and non-citizens, between Jew and non-Jew. Jews cannot be citizens in Venice. And if a non-citizen takes a citizen's blood, the penalty is severe. If Shylock spills a drop of Antonio's blood, says Portia, he forfeits all of his property to the state. 
Moreover, according to Venetian law, if a non-citizen like Shylock tries to take the life of a citizen like Antonio, then his own life is forfeit. The Duke agrees to let Shylock live if he obeys the conditions that Antonio names, that he leave his property to Jessica and Lorenzo, and that he convert to Christianity. Art thou contented, Jew? asks Portia. Shylock replies, I am content. Bassanio asks Portia, who is still in her lawyer's disguise, how he can repay her for saving Antonio. She asks for the ring, the gift from Portia that he swore he would never lose. He refuses at first, citing his promise to his wife. But when Antonio asks him to give up the ring, Bassanio agrees. Nerissa, as the clerk, asks Grosciano for the ring she gave him, and he agrees too. Back in Belmont, Lorenzo and Jessica contemplate stories of ill-fated lovers from the past before greeting all the parties returning from Venice. Nerissa berates Grosciano for losing her ring, and Bassanio reluctantly confesses that he too has given away his ring. Even so void is your false heart of truth, Portia declares. By heaven, I will never come in your bed until I see the ring. Bassanio asks her to forgive him and swears he will never again break a promise to her. Portia returns the ring to Bassanio and reveals that she was the lawyer who saved Antonio. She also shares the news that three of Antonio's ships have arrived with riches back to Venice and Lorenzo and Jessica learn that they will inherit Shylock's wealth. The play closes like a traditional comedy, with sets of lovers going off to bed. But the image that remains most vividly in the audience's mind is likely the isolated man who was left behind in Venice. The character of Shylock, as Shakespeare developed, expanded way beyond the structure of the play. To resolve this problem, Shakespeare has to get rid of Shylock in Act 4. That's an unusual strategy to take a major character and get rid of him before the fifth act. Shakespeare solved the problem, or at least dealt with it, by this very peculiar game of the rings. It's a nightmare for an acting company because you have to figure out how to get the tone of the fifth act to work. It's a state of exquisite uncomfortableness for virtually everyone. It's a deep problem. In the next episode, we'll start with a closer look at Shylock, and at how Shakespeare expanded the role so far beyond his culture's ideas of who such a person could be.